Hey, everybody. It's 11.02 Eastern Standard Time uh, from beautiful, snowy Manchester, New Hampshire today. Um, and that means it's time for trade school on Friday, the 7th of February. Um, a little bit of a departure today, everyone. We're going to talk about some pretty specific and uh, important overlooked uh, three of the nine deadly sins regarding trade compliance. And, you know, some of the real diehards are going to come on today and listen live, but I know many of you are going to listen to the recording, and I hope you, you do see the slides on this one today instead of just listening to the car. It's a, I get a lot of people who reach out to me in direct messages or, you know, they call me up. I'm still a phone guy. I, um, I, I remember when privacy on the phone meant I had to pull the super long cord on my mom and dad's AT&T bell phone, whatever it was, you know, into the closet and lock the closet door so that I could have some privacy on the telephone and text message. But I, I still like to call people and check in on them. And I love getting phone calls from people. Uh, and people say they, they listen to trade school in the car in traffic on the way to work, or they listen to it when they work out. And that's great. Um, but I think that seeing the slides can be good too. So when you have a chance for those who are just listening, it wouldn't be a bad idea to check out the slides on this one. Before we move on, a couple of things I want to mention. So um, we're going to do two things. First, a, a quick update about trades, the next trade school. And then second, we're going to do some real quick current events. So the next trade school is very important. Uh, the next trade school will be my update that I've pushed off and pushed off and pushed off on Brexit. Now, I would, I would like to say, because Matthew is on and Hannah are on, and, and they – they're like my wranglers. You know, if you sit through a Hollywood movie, there's always the, the bit at the end when they talk about the people who had to manage the animals on set. That's what they're, they're there with their, um, you know, with their tasers, keeping me in the lines and keeping me out of trouble and making sure things get done on time. Um, and and we've been they've been trying to get me to do the Brexit update for, I think, well over two months right now. And I'd love to say that I waited on purpose, but I didn't. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're finally going to do the Brexit update. Um, I guess it would be the end of this month. And I think that's a good time to do it. Now that the dust is beginning to settle on one part of it, and we're going to be ramping up for our reaction. And uh, there, are, there are four specific areas that all of you should be looking at. And that's how it's going to affect your tariff situation, how it's going to affect your supply chain, how it's going to affect the way that you pay and recover your VAT, your value-added tax, and how this could affect transfer pricing. So for those of you who do a lot of related party transactions, it's going to be not just a wrench in, in, your, in your daily life. It's, it's going to be like someone took a dumpster full of wrenches and threw it into the works. So if you or a friend or even an enemy or anyone you know is doing business in the UK, distributing through the UK, selling to the UK, please do not miss the next trade school. Um, and for those of you who have relationships in finance and tax, uh, you might want to have them on too, because I think this one's going to affect them. Second, on, um, on the uh, current events, you know, I kind of got into it on LinkedIn with somebody. And I try very hard to be non-confrontational on my social media because I've got better things to do. But, I mean, let's be honest, I, I really don't have anything better to do. I'm a 
I'm, a, I'm almost 50 years old. I mostly sit in my apartment and binge watch science fiction on Netflix and uh, try very hard to stay on my diet and think about the end. Mm. Anyway, so the, um, I got into it with someone on social media, on LinkedIn, when I said that the, uh, the novel coronavirus could be, could be a real problem on, from the supply chain aspect of things. And there are, there are uh, literally, if you guys were to go to the hashtag on the coronavirus or pandemic, there are tens of thousands of people who are talking about how this could, this could be disruptive for the whole, you know, for the whole world, how everyone's going. I, I really, I'm not a doctor. I'm not that kind of doctor. Right? I don't know anything about the, the medical side of it. I was just speaking from the perspective of somebody who remembers what SARS did to our industry and how complicated it was to manage and deal with it. And I'm looking at it from the perspective of a guy who sees Chinese New Year happen, which is the greatest annual migration of human beings on the planet. And this movement of folks with a very, very dangerous disease that is mostly not fatal to most people, but it could have a slowdown to the economy. And I know that when this thing gets started again, when, when Chinese New Year ends and people are feeling better and we get moving again, there's going to be a backlog on transportation and it's going to cost more. You don't have to be a Nobel laureate to figure that out in economics, right? It's just how it's going to be. So there's a lot of material out there. I've done some podcasts. I've, I've spoken to some people online. Get informed because uh, you've know, you got a couple of weeks now before it looks like it's going to start getting pretty crazy where we have to deal with our backlogs of cargo coming in from Asia. I think that um, I don't think I'll do a podcast on it unless this thing really lingers, but I just wanted to make people aware of the fact that this, this will have an effect on transportation prices and you know, um, letting you know ahead of time gives you a chance to manage the outcome. Okay, so with all that being said, why did I pick these three things to talk about? I'm going to let you know why. Now, Dan Dan the Import Man and I have done a lot of, of focused assessments, and we've been involved in a lot of compliance actions with our good friends at Customs and Border Protection. And generally, there are, there are really only three ways that, that audits go. They go pretty well where we sit down with a company who's done a lot of work, they've done a lot of work up front, they've really put a lot of effort into it, and, you know, customs comes away saying, eh, you know, things look pretty good. And they, you know, they, they pack up, and there's not a whole lot for them to get miserable about and make you miserable with them. Then there's the second kind where they just, I mean, everything is a layup. It really, they're... The company doesn't have a manual or a process. They've been letting their broker classify everything. They don't manage uh, value correctly. It's just everything that you can possibly imagine has been done wrong. And then, you know, we got to settle in for a really long, painful, protracted process with them. Oh, wow. Sounds like one of my neighbors is doing some work. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, such is life in a big city. Uh, then there's a third one. And the third one, and I'm looking at the names of the people who are on right now, and a lot of you have positively magnificent trade compliance programs. The third one generally happens when there is a um, when there's someone from customs who is an auditor who's quite good. You don't always get the A team from the auditors. Let's just be realistic. 
But when you do, they've seen some things in the past that they know to go back to when everything else looks fine. All right? So they'll, they'll focus on the less likely things that they're going to see. And these are three that a very, very good auditor is likely to look into and many times will find something wrong. And that's country of origin, record-keeping, and Chapter 98 programs. And so what I wanted to do today was not so much spend what's left of our time together getting into – I'm going to talk about each one of them, you know, getting into the compliance details and citing chapter and verse about what they all mean. We'll talk about that a little bit. But what I thought was more important for us to do today was to talk about how people catch you in mistakes, what you could do to take a look at your program, your process, and your transactions to see if you've got any problems, and then some quick and easy ways to probably address some trade compliance issues there. I'm kind of, um, I've kind of got this, this, this uh, resolution in 2020. I'm sick and tired of people, you know, what's informed people and make them aware of things. Like right now on LinkedIn, you, you cannot throw a rock without hitting someone's status update from a freight forwarder or trade compliance um, personnel saying, we're giving a free webinar on Brexit to let you know what's going on. You know what? I don't care what's going on. I can watch the news like anybody else. I think that all of us need to come to expect from one another, and I want you to expect from me that when we talk about things, we're talking about how to deal with it. I think we all know what the problem is, and I think we can all watch the news. What do I need to do to make sure that I'm ahead of it so that when my audit committee asks me what I did to be prepared, I have an answer. So that when my clients and customers ask me what I did to be ahead of it, I have an answer. And so that when my shareholders ask me, I have an answer. Because there have been times that Customs has audited people and it's come up. These fines and penalties could have been avoided by a better use of your resources and time. Why didn't you do that very thing? And I don't ever want you people to be in that situation because I genuinely, I mean, I adore my clients. Most of them are my friends, and I don't ever want you to have to explain that kind of stuff to anybody. All right? So as always, everyone, um, there is a questions and answers section, a Q&A section here. And uh, the best thing for you to do if you have questions throughout the presentation today is to go ahead and click on the Q&A and put your questions there. The chat area is really if we have technical problems, if you can't hear me, if, um, if you can't see something, and Matthew will jump all over that. So uh, otherwise, put your questions there, and we'll get to them at the end. If there's questions about anything, anything at all, I'm happy to answer them. And again, like Matthew said, if, if we run out of time today, I'll try to answer your question via email. And I say it every time. You can call me about anything. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, trade compliance, transportation, logistics. I've got your back. So um, my contact information is going to be on the last slide here. Hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm always around for you. All right, Pete, enough talking. Let's get to it. Like Marvin Gaye said, let's get it on. All right, so these are three of the least discussed issues. And um, many of you don't know this, but when I do presentations, particularly over the last five years, I like to record myself. So I'll put a video in the back of the room. I'll put my camera up on my phone. I actually went out and bought a really, um, a really good sturdy stand on Amazon. I think I paid like 20 bucks for it. And um, I'll record myself giving a presentation. And one of the things I did is I timed how long on the nine deadly sins I spent talking about things. I 
spent very little time talking about these three issues. And I, I don't know why that was the case. And then, um, then I went back and I started thinking about the past two, three years maybe, what were people calling me about infrequently, but when they called me about it, it was awful. <laughs> Man, this, is, this went dark real fast, Pete. <laughs> but when people would call me about stuff uh, um, on an issue – and, and it was bad. And these were three where it was, I mean, like if someone calls me and says, I've got a record keeping situation and I don't know how to fix it. And I've done the usual stuff and customs is coming down on me with a shovel of wisdom and I don't know what to do. Yeah, it's bad. Um, and the same thing goes for country of origin chapter 98 programs. They've gotten a lot better. Um, but, but anyway, these can be real bad. So, the first thing you've all got to get into your beautiful, wonderful minds is that the guys at customs are just auditors. When you meet at least the old school customs auditors, many of them have accounting degrees or finance degrees. They're very sharp people when it comes to reviewing statistics. A lot of them, believe it or not, had dreams when they were younger of working for the FBI. And a lot of people at the FBI, they, 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 um, they get involved in enforcing financial crimes. So a lot of them are auditors. They're, they're accountants. So many of the people that you're going to be dealing with at customs come from an accounting background. And then even if they don't, a significant portion of their training is learning how to be a financial auditor because that's what, that's what they're doing. They're, they're going through the, the process of an of a international transaction to understand from start to finish how you did it and if it lives up to their standards. That's all it is, you know? So they want information when they want it, and they want it to be delivered in a way that's clear. They want that data to be easy to understand and simple to see, and they don't want to have to wait around for it. So these three things can be layups because a lot of times that information just isn't available, or, or, or you know, its lack of it being available is the, is the actual problem. So when these things occur, man, they hammer you. And something else I'll mention about this, it's systemic. So if there's a problem once or twice, man, there's been a problem for like five years. If you've been screwing this up for a little while, you've been screwing this up for a long while. You know, I didn't get to be the size I am by skipping salads every once in a while. I mean, I went to my Weight Watchers meeting this morning. Shout out to WW. I lost some more weight. Very happy about all that. Um, and, you know, one of the things I like to say about Trade compliance is when something goes terribly wrong, it's always a snowball effect. This is absolutely no difference. The, the complexities of these three things have luckily for us been simplified. Just about, just about everything about these three issues has gotten easier with the Internet and technology and the way that we communicate amongst ourselves in the trade with our suppliers and our vendors. But for some strange reason, I don't know why, a lot of people just haven't, you know, they haven't gotten better. We'll sell a, um, a duty minimization study for a client where we'll go in and we'll say, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at everything that you've done for the past five years. And if we think we can save you some money, we'll, you know, you don't have to pay us anything unless we find something. That's pretty common for us. It's actually, it's a significant part of our business. And they'll say, okay, great. What do I have to do? And we'll say, ah, nothing, you know, um, then we go on site and we have to go through their records because these guys don't keep data digitally. You would be shocked. Or maybe you wouldn't be. I mean, a lot of you might be this way. A lot of companies don't keep their records electronically for customs. They just, 
they still have warehouses full of paper because that's just the way they manage it when you don't have to do it that way. There's no reason why you should have to do it that way. Practically everything you need can be available and done online now. So, you know, that's one that could really help you in this, and we'll talk more about it when we get to it. So let's get, let's get the obvious out of the way. Whenever I meet with anyone for the first time, you know, whether it's at, at, uh, <laughs> at an industry function over a, a, nice, uh, a nice glass of brown liquor, or if we're having a sales conversation, or if it's somebody who just gave me a phone call and wants to talk about trade compliance, my first question is, do you have a program? Because if you don't have a program, we've we got to get on top of that first. You need to have a, an overreaching process and program over how you import so that we can audit it and keep things in check. And do you have a manual? And if you, if you don't have either one of those things, hey, everybody, just go ahead and click off right now. Just stop. Because, I mean, it's cool you can learn about this stuff, but you need to go back to some of the old trade schools and you need to get your head around making a compliance manual because today will be a little more than you need to know about. If you don't have a compliance manual, if you don't have a program, you're already, you're already done. You know? you're, you're 25 runs behind in the ninth inning and Chapman's coming up on the mound. It's over, baby. So having a well-written manual is extremely important. And I, and I would rather that you had um, a, a short, concise, effective manual that actually reflects what it is your company does than some 50-pound book that some trade lawyer you know, basically did cut and paste in and gave to you and said, voila, here's your manual. Now do your business to this manual. No, no, no. You need to figure out what your business is and create processes around it. Because when customs comes in, they're going to ask you why you're not auditing against this process in this manual. And you're going to say, well, it's because it was a cookie cutter version from somebody who charged me a kidney and my firstborn to do it. Okay, so it needs to be real, not, not some big heavy book you could kill a panther with, right? Now, if you have a manual, when's the last time you updated it? And can you show me that you have evidence of its updates? Is there, is there some sort of electronic or, or paper format that says, on a yearly basis, we've reviewed the process, it's still standard, it still works, or are there things about your business that you have to change? I'll go into a company that's acquired five other companies in the past three years, and they haven't accounted for the fact that these companies are vastly different um, in the way that they trade as opposed to how this company works. Sorry, so enough, of my, enough of my lectures you know, country of origin, the story I always tell um, for you long-term trade school listeners, I apologize. It's the same story over and over again. Um, but I think it's a great story. I think it's an important one. I was in a, um, <laughs> I was in an audit, and the customs auditor kept bringing up that there were all these transactions from one particular vendor in Canada. This is a, a very large oil refining company. So um, <laughs> the auditor kept – I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny, but it's funny now. You know, on reflection, it's funny now. So this auditor, very astute, very smart auditor, kept saying, for all these transactions from Canada, are you sure that this product qualifies for NAFTA? And we're like, oh, yeah, you know, here's a certificate. And actually, we have, a, we have a, a, a memo here that qualifies it based on the values from the vendor and blah, 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 blah. And it's updated annually. And okay, okay, okay. And the next day he's like, are you, I just, are you sure this stuff is Canadian? Because, you know, we've talked to other people. I'm like, yes, we have everything right here. And I, I said to my client, can we, 
how about we take a minute? How about we take a breath, take a, take a break? I said, these guys know something. They wouldn't have brought it up like this if they didn't have something. So, um, you know, let's, let's try to avoid this topic, and we'll, we'll talk more about it tonight. So later on, we walked out to the warehouse, and we took a look at one of these. It was a, it was a huge, like an, almost like an impeller, like a, like a massive steel thing. And stamped on the side of it in humongous letters, like, like steel forged letters made in China. <laughs> so, you know, definitely not qualifying for NAFTA. And what we learned was their vendor, who had always bought it one way and done it one way, they had switched their vendor to a Chinese manufacturer. And it just wasn't it wasn't made in, in a way that qualified for NAFTA anymore. So, you know, they, they ended up getting managing it and dealing with it, and it didn't sink us in the audit. Everything worked out okay. But, man, you want to talk about getting blindsided. When's the last time you looked at the way your stuff is, is marked? Because I am very much that guy who, when I'm walking around in Target or, you know, with my daughter at, at Newbury Comics on the weekend, I'm looking at the way things are marked. I'm always looking at the way things are marked, or in a lot of cases, not marked. How there is no country of origin whatsoever on the product. It's just not even there. The rules for origin marking are really simple, folks. Okay? Is it permanent? And permanent is a fascinating concept because, you know, people will put a, a sticker on something and say, well, that's good enough. You know, believe it or not, it's not. Um, is it legible? Can someone see it? And is it conspicuous? Is it easy to see? One of my favorite uh, things I was given as a guideline from a former customs employee was uh, if it needs to be the same size font as the smallest font on the packaging. So whatever the marketing font, mind you, not legal font. So whatever marketing font was the smallest font on the packaging, the country of origin should probably be the same size. Is a great guideline to understand if it was properly marked. And, you know, was it even marked at all? Have you ever had here's a here's a again great compliance tip from from uh, from Uncle Pete. When's the last time that you had a WebEx for your vendors that went through your vendor manual? Oh, oh, you don't have a vendor manual. Okay, well that's a whole other WebEx. But have you had a WebEx where you said these are the expectations that we have uh, in order for you to get paid on a commercial invoice? Here's what needs to be in that commercial invoice. Here's how it needs to be structured. Here's what needs to be done on the packaging so that we can qualify for proper country of origin. Here's how it needs to look. Here's where it probably ought to be. Are you brought into that? You know, is, does someone in quality or someone in, um, in purchasing ask the trade compliance people to review how something is packaged or marked before it ever comes in the country to make sure it's A-OK? I know in footwear and in fashion that's pretty common, but is it done in, in your business? Now, many of you buy from vendors who would never – you know, you're lucky if you get a phone call back. But you need to show evidence in case something does go wrong that you at least tried to get them to follow the rules. Because many times, like I said, this stuff isn't even marked at all. And how should it be marked? Well, it's got to be marked in a way that the ultimate purchaser, so the person in the U.S. who's going to fork over the money, can tell where this stuff came from. And, and it doesn't have to be somebody who actually purchased it. It could have been free. And that's another thing that people screw up on. Well, if money doesn't change hands, if it's, a, if it's a, a transfer from one company to another and there's no money changing hands, who cares? Nope, still matters. Sorry, I had to, I had to take a, a sip of my 
massive cold brew I got this morning because you need that energy. Um, so ask yourself a real simple question when you look at the way your product is marked. Does the person who's going to buy this thing, would they be in a position to easily, without a whole lot of Sherlock Holmes deduction, take a look at it and say, this thing was made here? Could they do that? If they can't, then you've got a problem. And you've got to find a way to overcome that. Also, is your country of origin marking misleading? Ah, oh, there have been times where you'll have, you know, um, a company's name, comma, and then the city it's from because that's part of who they are, you know. Pete Mento Incorporated, comma, Manchester, New Hampshire. I don't think Manchester would move a lot of units. Um, but then, underneath it, made in China. Okay, well... Customs would see that as confusing to the consumer, and you could ultimately have a problem with that. So, you know, a couple of takeaways here. You need to be in a situation where you're communicating to your vendors what your expectations are, and I hope that you are. You need to have proof that that communication's happened. You should always have samples of the intention of the way that the company is going to mark the product for you so that you can be able to approve it. And I know that country of origin sometimes can be an issue for the um, for you know how you want people to see it, but too bad this is this is something again that customs will tell you you got to redeliver this stuff, pick it all up, bring it back, figure out how you're going to market or send it back to where it came from, but you can't sell it in the condition that it is now. And you know what happens a lot? You've got good Samaritans, you've got you know patriotic Americans that notice something isn't isn't properly. Uh, marked, and they drop dimes on people. There's competitors who will drop dimes on people. And a lot of times it's just inspections at the port. Um, similar materials that they found in the past didn't quite go right. There's always exceptions, but never never just look at this list of exceptions and be like, oh, okay, so I have to mark my crap because of, you know, blank. Well, you still have to get permission to not have to mark your goods for most of these. So things that you can't mark Things that are so small that you simply you, know, you, you just can't you can't mark them. That's a that's a good one. Or things that are so big, like a like a ship full of coal, as an example. Um, things that you would injure the goods. That's a great one. Um, and there are many instances where companies said, "Well, we can't mark it because it would injure it and it would make it um, unsellable for us, so we're not going to worry about it. Well, that's, that's fine. It's even legal. You've got to tell customs and let them know about it ahead of time. So have you done that? Um, it's not economically possible because it would cost so much to do. Um, uh, yeah, so this, this one is a little weird. Marking the article's container will reasonably indicate the article's origin. That's, that's normal. Um, but is, is it's being sold in that container the way the, the consumer will see it? It's a crude substance that's going to get you know redone and manufactured. There are rules about products that are going to be used for manufacturing. Um, it's not intended for resale in any form whatsoever. And the person who's importing it is going to be using it. Again, you need to get permission. Um, processing for obliteration. Uh, these are all, again, very, 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 very unlikely. Uh, this, I love this one. The article was produced more than 20 years prior to importation. So antiques. Did you know that 20 years? That's the, that's the number. So cars and all the rest of it. That's kind of cool. There's something called the J-List, which is interesting. Uh, anything on the J-List, which is in 19 CFR, 134.33, does not require 
marking. And it's very clear what those things are. So um, like ball bearings is on that list. There's a bunch of things that are on there. And it's um, things are added to it over time. So if you're concerned about something that you import that you don't think should be marked, that's a great place to look at it. And um, the article cannot be marked after importation except at a cost which is economically prohibitive and the failure to mark part importation was not intentional. So you didn't mean to not mark it when it came in. Um, it was a mistake that was made by a foreign vendor, but to put markings on it now would cost far more than the necessary. Uh, I've never seen anyone actually win that argument. I'm sure someone has, but and someone's going to pipe up now, oh, I did it. Yeah, good for you. Here's a cookie. Um, but I've never been able to pull it off. Record keeping is such a gimme. Oh, but when it goes wrong, I've had people have to go to 100 retail stores, take everything off the shelves, and bring it back. And if you don't think that's expensive and embarrassing and frustrating, I've, I've seen people have to do it at the most busy time of the year for them from a sales perspective. Oh, oh the pain. Oh, that's awful. That's awful. So a little bit of effort here goes a whole long way. Okay, record keeping. Record keeping is, again, you'd think, right? You'd think, what's the, what's the big deal? My broker's got all my records. Well, first of all, it's not your broker's responsibility. And if Customs comes in to talk to you and says, oh, you know, let's talk about your record keeping regime. And you say to them, oh, our broker has all our records. You need to just buckle up because you are about to enter a whole world of pain you never thought possible. Even, even the most, the most kind-hearted lovable government official is about to bring you to a place that's going to leave scars on you emotionally for the rest of your career. You are responsible for keeping these records. And one of the problems with well, what's a record, you know, what do I need to have in my records is that it's broadly defined. So there's something called the A1A list, which I've never forgotten because I'm a Jimmy Buffett fan and he has a great record called the A1A. Um, I could hear all the millennials just absolutely laughing at me. Just the eye rolls that are happening right now all over the country saying that I'm a Jimmy Buffett fan. Well, whatever. Um, the, the, the A1A list is magnificent in that it points out things that absolutely need to be on it. The guidance that I will give you, and again, here's one of those little bon mots from Crazy Uncle Pete. Think about your purchase order from purchase order through payment. Think about what you're importing from the time a purchase order is, is put together until it's paid for. Think of all of the processes that happen. Anything that's documented along that, that linear line from the time that you decide something's going to be made overseas and bought overseas until you pay the kind people that made that thing for you and you have proof of that payment, you need to have some sort of a paper trail for that. And when you begin to think about record keeping in that way, it can be a little, a little daunting and uncomfortable for people because there's a lot more to it than the bundle of documents that's given to you by the customs house broker. You have things in your general ledger that are important. You can have, believe it or not, folks, you know, the, the design of the product can be important because you could have issues with things like, um, like assists that are associated with it. People always ask me, what about emails back and forth with freight forwarders and such? Yeah. Anything that would be considered discoverable in a, in, a, in, a, in a trial is what you should probably have around. And 
when you don't have them, I'll show you in a minute, the penalties are draconian. They're like medieval. They might as well put somebody in the Iron Maiden, right? I mean, it's, it, they're, they're awful. And why? It's what I told you, like in, what was it, slide number, I don't know, like slide number two. Customs auditors are basically accountants. And when you can't even start what they want to do because you don't have the documents they want to look at, oh, oh they, you know, they just want to pack up their stuff and leave and just like say, give me a blank check because they're so frustrated. So not having the documents that they that they need is a massive first pothole that you positively have to overcome. You got a five year look back on this stuff from the time of importation or from the time of of the of the action. So drawback as an example, you need to have five years of records. Now, should you keep records on the custom side for longer than that? No. Yet nine. No, 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 no. You keep the records for as long as you have to, and then you take all of those records out the parking lot, and you douse them with kerosene, and you light them on fire, and you do a little dance. And you have a weenie roast, and you make s'mores with everybody's kids. Because the longer you hold records, the farther back customs can actually audit you. Imagine that. Like, you, you know, you screwed something up in classification, and they uncover it, and then they find out that you've got more than five years of records. They can continue to go back for as far as you've kept records of the transactions. Don't be that guy. Make sure that you are that you have a process. And I would put that in my manual, that there's a process that happens on the monthly or on a quarter, whereas records of the importation that are no longer necessary uh, are identified taken someplace, and if you have a shredding process or whatever the case may be, they are eliminated so that they no longer become an audit concern for you. That's, and that's important, right? When, they, when they're past their usefulness for the requirements of your audit, they need to no longer be in the record. So let's just make sure we stay on top of that. Now, the fines on this are awful. So complying in a willful manner, we'll talk about willful in a second, to store, retrieve, and demand for records, for each release of merchandise, so that means for every entry, it can be either 75% of the appraised value of the entry or 100 grand, whichever is less. And that's, that's a sobering number. But remember, that's for a willful failure. Like you've got to wake up in the morning, go to work and say, hey, let's not cooperate with the government. And that's highly unlikely. It's highly unlikely. But they have happened. They have happened. There have been companies who have made a conscious decision to destroy records so that they cannot be discovered by customs, and information about that has been provided from former employees or existing employees to customs as part of a whistleblower uh, situation. That's not good at all. Um, you know, I, I, I get tongue-in-cheek about destroying records. At the end of their usefulness, of course, is when you would do something like that. Don't ever. If customs want something, you make sure that you have it for them and you provide and produce it for them at the time that they request it and within the time frame that they request it. A more likely situation is the second one. And, you know, it's a significant <laughs> discount on the old fine and penalty, but wow, is it still an eye-opener. Ten grand or 40% of the appraised value. So customs comes to visit you and they need a document. You can't get it. So I have a, a trade attorney friend of mine. She's very good. And we, um, 
we got into a bit of a kerfuffle on this one night because she said, your broker's going to have something and you're going to be able to put some, enough together between banks, brokers, and logistics providers and your internal accounting process that you can, you can take care of this. And I said, oh, au contraire, my mon frere. Here's the reason why. What, what if your customs house broker has gone out of business? Let's start with that. They are no longer around. But what if, what if the sole proprietor has passed away? It happens. What if the bank that you did business with is no longer in business? Well, then someone probably bought them and has their records. Okay. You can put your, 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 your hope in that. But what if they didn't? What if you purchased a company and that per- company that you purchased wasn't keeping records? They never did. And there's, there's no way to find out who the broker was that moved this. What if the iTrack data isn't complete? What if it was done and imported through, um, through a, uh, uh, a 4PL, through, a, um, you know, through one of the integrators that doesn't report through the iTrack? I mean, this can be a real problem. So you have to take, you have to be sovereign. You have to think of yourself as sovereign when it comes to things like this. No one else's misery matters. Only your need for the information. I am, I am a, a perfectly reasonable person until, you know, things need to be unreasonable. A couple of days ago, someone tried to. One of the airlines told me that someone else needed my seat for a flight, and I told them I don't know how many police officers they have at the ready, but they're going to need all of them to get me out of the seat. So, you need to have that attitude. When it comes to record keeping, I don't care how hard it is for this broker. I don't care how hard it is for this particular financial entity. I need to have everything from point A to point B readily available in the event that customs ask me for this information. And there is absolutely no ground for mercy on this. Because if something goes wrong, the numbers that we're facing are absolutely reckless. Some more things about that. Can you keep your records electronically? Yes, you absolutely positively can. And I think it's glorious that you could keep them. Uh, You have to tell the port director in your region that you intend on doing that. And there is a form letter. If you don't know how to get the form letter, um, hit your boy up. I will make sure that you get a copy of it. It's very simple and easy to do. You send it to the government with your intention on, on keeping those records and how you plan on doing it. You've got to have a backup. I think, you know, it's 2020, so I would hope you have a backup for your financial information. You, um, and then whatever form you receive the documents in originally is considered the original format. So if your broker, as an example, sends you a batch every month or every quarter, or every week, what have you, of all of the, that information and that batch is electronic, then that would be considered its original format. But you've got to go to the government. Why do I love electronic records so much? Oh man, I uh, there's there's a in my in my my cold dead heart. There's a little happy place that warms up a little bit when I ask an importer for information on something we're working on, and they just send me a PDF file like ten minutes later. Oh, oh, oh! I actually I get up from my home office and I go over and I, I make myself a cup of coffee and I have a moment. I have a moment to reflect on how joyful I am when that happens because it, it just, it, and imagine how customs feels. What do they think when they say, you know, we're going to do a focused audit, focused, uh, we're doing a focused assessment. We've decided on a universe of 12 entries. These are the 12 entries. And you're like, yeah, no problem. And the next day, bam, here they are, electronic format, start to finish, sort through payment, all put together. 
what's next, right? Go sit, go sit on your little stool and get ready for round two because I'm coming out throwing haymakers. What else do you want? Get in the cage. Lock it. I'm ready. That's the situation we want to be in. Not, I don't know where this stuff is, and I don't know what to do with it. So let's get there. All right. I don't know, um, Matthew, if someone's not muted, but I'm getting some, some noises and such back there. Okay. So um, Chapter 98 programs. Many, 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 many times. Dan Dan the Import Man, who is in in all ways my my uh, my academic and intellectual superior uh, when it comes to reviewing the data and a lot of this stuff, he will come across eye track data and ACE data and note just how often materials are being returned for repairs for one of our clients, how often things are used overseas and brought back. And they are inappropriately imported in a way that forces the importer to pay tariffs on them. And Chapter 98 programs are very beneficial to an importer when they're done correctly. One of the first things that many of you will do when you go to a new company and you begin your your odyssey of making them compliant is suspending Chapter 98 programs and suspending free trade agreements until you're absolutely certain that products qualify. And I'm very much a better safe than sorry kind of a cat. So um, if that's what you need to do to make sure that you're on the straight and narrow, my power to you. But the Chapter 98 program can be a powerful tool in that it allows you in an expanded way now to not pay tariffs on things that started here, went to another country, and came back. And not pay tariffs on things that are coming back for repair just simply to go back to where they came from. And remember, there are different ways you do Chapter 98. So first thing that gets screwed up, do you honestly think that your customs house broker knows something is a U.S. good returned when it's coming into the U.S.? They, they're, they're not going to know unless you've taken the time and the effort and the energy to tell them. So you need to make sure that you are communicating with your broker in a way that allows them to have the time to understand what's coming back, to ask you some questions to assure it qualifies, and then to, to, to make you know, certain addendums to the entry and to create an appendix for the entry that shows that you've done your due diligence to prove that it qualifies under one of these programs. The broker is a really important part of the Chapter 98 program and a uh, massive fan of custom sales brokers. I know how hard it is to be one, but there's a lot of people out there that are only going to do as well as the information you give them. And a lot of people out there, a lot of people in the trade, they've, they've purchased their customs house brokerage based on price, and they're not looking for value. A good broker, a good broker is going to work with you on this kind of stuff. And you're going to save a lot of money in the long run, even though it cost you a little more money. So I don't do entries anymore. I don't sell that stuff. But I'm just telling you that's one thing to look at. So there was an expansion to the Chapter 98 program that I don't think got enough press. And I, you know, and it should have, because it's a big deal and it's beautiful. It's uh, it, it's it's beautiful, like like Oscar Oscar level, um, cinematography kind of beautiful. If you exported something from the U.S. and it's coming back here, but it wasn't necessarily made in the U.S., we can still we can now count that for a Chapter 98 program. It was it was expanded, so you know to get to the actual language, U.S. origin products exported from and returned to the U.S. Origin. Origin is an important term. Not made in, right? 
all products exported from and returned to the U.S. regardless of the country of origin. These products have a three-year time limit. Three-year time limit. Three-year time limit. There, I said it three times. So I hope you heard that part. For many companies in the energy industry, in mining, folks that are involved in automotive, they neglect to remember. They're like, oh, well, Chapter 98 has been expanded. I don't have to worry about it. Sorry. Try again. If it's been out of the country for more than three years in an expedition or you were looking at trying to find some way to expand your, your drilling or whatever the case may be, or it was a mining, three-year limit. Okay? So this part that I've got the two asterisks on here is exceptionally important. The provision affecting return property applies to U.S. or foreign articles returned to the U.S. and entered or withdrawn from warehouse for consumption on or after April 25th, 2016. Okay, so that time limit is massive, positively massive, and you know we're past that time limit. You have to make sure that you've got something that proves that this is going to be there for you and, and, and not not a limit issue. So you've got to have a formal entry and a declaration. It's pretty easy to prove that this stuff moved. So uh, declaration by a foreign shipper indicating that the products were not advanced in value or condition is good enough. You know it's crazy. Um, that was not good enough to prove a product was exported back in the day. But that's changed now with the drawback program where, where nothing is happening, where your claims are just sitting there and customs is not doing anything about them while they, you know, the government collects interest on your money. That's a whole other WebEx as well. Uh, for U.S. manufactured goods on entries valued over 2500 it's got to be formally entered and are not cleared marked with the names and address, with, marked with the names and address of the U.S. manufacturer. They may require an affidavit. So just keep that in mind. A lot of CBP-28s, and for those of you who don't know what that is, that's a request for more information, will come on Chapter 98 returns asking for some sort of proof. And if you've got that proof, you're given time for it. But make sure that you're in a situation where you can contact someone and get proof on that so that you'll be in good shape on the Chapter 98s. Any of these documents is sufficient proof of export from the U.S. to prove that it left the U.S. and that it came back. So a copy of the entry into foreign, in the foreign country, export invoice or bill of lading, or an EEI. If you're in a situation where you have um, uh, serial numbers for the product, so it was a serialized number product, that's fantastic. If you have the original exportation documents, that's fantastic. Many companies are re-importing things that were done specifically for one particular company. So they were, they were made in such a way that uh, you know, after they were produced, they were, they were uh, highly specialized. So there's records of that as well. Those are all great to help to solidify your claim that a product was actually subject um, to the opportunity to be brought back for Chapter 98. This is one of the last ditch efforts that a good auditor will say, all right, I've gone through the nine deadly sins here. I've looked at classification, you know, I've looked at free trade agreements. We've gone through valuation, which usually most companies have a problem with valuation. We spent considerable time looking at related party entries, yada, yada, yada. You know, record keeping looks pretty good. These guys don't have a country of origin problem. Oh, oh hold on. In the past three years, they've had 215 Chapter 98 returns. Well, let's see what kind of records they've got. And that's where the party can happen. So, my advice to you is pull your data on ACE, put on iTrack, and take a look and see if you've had some Chapter 98 returns, how hard would it be 
You know, I, I know everyone is overworked and understaffed. But take some time next week and say for entry number, yada, 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 blah, 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 uh, in 2019, where we claim Chapter 98, go pull all the documents. Can you prove it? Can you prove it? Can you prove it in such a way where, you know, you give yourself an hour to pull everything you need? And that might not seem like a lot of time, but folks, if you've got good record keeping, that's an eternity. Where if you got a 28 on this, you could easily respond in the affirmative that you have everything you need to do this right. All right, so I'm going to do some questions and answers. Uh, go ahead and put your questions in here, and I will get to them as quickly as I can. Um, so let's see here. Got an interesting one, long one. U.S. supplier who reports from Japan, they fabricate the product of the facility with new connections. The facility is not an FTZ. Um, they sell the joints to our company. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's the country of origin. So if this is significant, remember, guys, tariff shift is not necessarily what you're going to need um, to prove that something was actually manufactured in another country. I would, uh, I would absolutely say that if you're seeing a significant change in, in uh, the essential character of the goods, these days, especially with the 301s, you're probably going to be in good shape. If you ever have questions and you're not sure about something, I would absolutely positively get a ruling. This is not this is not a situation where hope is a strategy. Don't go with your gut um, with your <laughs> with your gut on these. Just go ahead and, and get someone's opinion, and you'll be in good shape. All right. Uh, no other questions here today. So again, two weeks from now, we're having a pretty big deal on Brexit. I am going to have guests on. We're going to talk in depth about a lot of the things that are probably going to affect your business. If you're doing business in that part of the world, you need to be on. Even if you're not there's a chance that many of you are going to be switching jobs and working for somebody who is going to have a problem. And for those of you who just want to be well-informed, get people on here that are engaged in tax and finance with you. They're going to want to hear this. And um, honestly, this could be one of the more um, complex ones that we've done in some time. So there's going to be a lot of big brain stuff going on on this one, folks. Uh, as always, please do follow me on LinkedIn. I will have fresh information about all of the things that are going on in global trade right now. And boy, is it busy? And um, if any of you ever have any questions whatsoever, please feel free to email me at any time at pete.mento at crow.com. That's pete.mento at crow with an E, C-R-O-W-E.com. And of course, my mobile number, 978-317-3250. Call, text, anytime. I'll be happy to do the best I can to help you. Again, I think it's one thing to be well-informed. It's another thing to have a plan. So if you don't have a plan, I'm here for you. Just go ahead and give me a shout. And with that, have a wonderful weekend, and I will hand it back over to Matthew. Pete, thank you so much. And as always, I want to take a moment and thank you for walking us through the content. It is always complex information shared with style and in a way that makes it entertaining as well. So we appreciate that. Now, to all of you, I do want to thank you for your time and attention today. You gave us what is the most precious commodity you have, an hour of your time. We hope that it was time well invested with us, and we look forward to having you join us on a future broadcast. Have a great day.